And so tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 39. Psalm 39, you can turn there. But before we get there, I'd like to just give a little bit, of, just a, a small portion of background. You can turn there and be sifting through the verses and reading through some of that as we uh, get ready. But in Psalm 38, 37, 38, 39, 40, those, those psalms are, are, are appropriate for Psalm 39 because they do have a, a somewhat of a connection uh, in that the psalm, the numbers are just men's numbers. You know, they're not inspired. They're just there to help us. And so, but in Psalm 38, if you are there, uh, we, if you just scan over that, this is a heading that I have in my Bible. It's uh, the prayer of a suffering penitent. I don't know what you would have in your your version, but that's helpful. It, it's a song. It's a psalm about David, and uh, he's 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 um, he's repentant. He's uh, being convicted by God about some sin or sins in his life. And then Psalm 39, my heading says the vanity of life. The the uh, it's short. It's a puff of air, vanity in the scriptures. Habel is the word uh, Solomon uses a lot. The other writers use it. It's just this um, this idea of uh, your breath on a cold day. You imagine that it's just gone, right? It's just very transient, very temporary, very short-lived. And so, the vanity of life. Psalm 40 is that God uh, sustains His servant. I don't know what you have for your headings, but. Uh, God sustains his servant. So, ten, servant. so tonight, we're looking at thir- Psalm 39, and, uh, and, and a lot of it will be touching on how the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves. He disciplines us for our good and his glory. Um, and we'll touch on some of the comments that David makes as he is thinking through his times of trouble and chastening and his, the heavy hand of God's pressure on his life uh, in his troubling times. He, David was no stranger to troubles. If you know anything about his life, he was a man who had a lot of problems, a lot of troubles. Some of it were his enemies self-inflicted as well. He, he, he inflicted his own suffering. His sin with Bathsheba, we recall that story of his, his life, a dark time in David's life where he fell into great sin and paid the penalty for it for many, many years. He had many enemies at various times. We think of the Philistines uh, chasing him all over the place. We had Saul, who was out to get him. Uh, his own son, Absalom, who was, who was uh, betrayed him as his own, his own son. What a sad thing that is. To, if you think about it in your own family, what would that be like to have that in your family? Someone close to you who just hates you and wants to see you uh, dead, actually. And so... He was no stranger to uh, problems. Psalm 41.5 says, My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? In 41.7, it says this, uh, All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. Psalm 69.4, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty of those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. Why, what I did not steal, must I now restore. 69.8 I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. What a life. What a, what some, and that's not all. There are more. But that's just a sample. And this time we find David facing troubles from the wicked around him, 
and from the chastening hand of God for his own personal sin. It doesn't really indicate, well, indirectly there's indications, I, I believe, that it does talk about his sin. It wasn't the one with Bathsheba. We'll go through that and pull some of that out. But, um, so in Psalm, we, in, in this Psalm we find David facing troubles from the wicked and from his own sin. Um, Psalm 38, uh, 1 through 5, um, we see, the Lord, O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, and chasten me not in your burning anger. For your, sorrow, your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has passed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. Now get this, this next phrase here. He says, there is no health in my bones because of my sin. He knows. He knows. His conscience has been pricked, and he knows. He says in verse 4, for my iniquities are gone over my head as heavy burden as a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. There it is again, because of my folly, because of my sin. And in 18, I, I confess my iniquity. He's straight up. He's straight out with it. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. The writer of Hebrews teaches us that the Lord disciplines the ones he loves in Hebrews 12, 5, and 6, and he says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary, for when, when we proved by him, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. Well, David here, we, we saw that he, has, he had external enemies, and he had an internal enemies called sin and folly by his own admission. Peter, Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2.11. He, he calls it passions of the flesh that war against the soul. Pretty descriptive thinking, uh, thinking through that. War against the soul. It's our, it's our self-inflicting sin that we're all guilty of at one time or another. So when you find yourself in troubling times or the chastening of the Lord from external enemies like David, or from God's chastening hand for personal sin, what do, you, what do you normally do in those times of suffering? Where do you go to find relief and help in those days of your suffering and problems? Well, David got it right in Psalm 38, 15. He says, For I hope in you, O Lord. You will answer, O Lord, my God. David got it right, but it did take him a little while. So in Psalm 39 is a, a psalm of lament, a personal lament psalm, and one writer says it this way, laments are songs of disorientation sung by those who are in distress. I think it's a good description of a, a lament psalm. Many laments contain a confession of sin and, and model prayers. That's, that's one reason why I like lament psalms, because they do offer good praying uh, words. Uh, Tremper Longman III says in his introduction to the, to the commentary on Psalms, he says, the lament does not just express the distress of the person who suffers, but also begins to minister to that person by moving them towards a more positive attitude towards God and life. Amen. So let's look into Psalm 39 
and see David's journey of how he found hope in God and learned to wait for God's answers to his problem. I'm going to read the psalm, Psalm 39, it begins like this. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I refrained even from good and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me while I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Selah. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I have become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me because of the opposition of your hand. I am perishing with proofs. With reproofs, you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. Turn your gaze away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. So again, a quick overview of this psalm is David is going through some crushing suffering due to the chastening hand of God for some sinful thinking in David's life. I believe his deep desire is to maintain his testimony before others. He says in verse 1, I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. So what do you do or say when God brings a trial or discipline your way? And I want to emphasize a little more on what do you say? What, what comes out of your mouth when you are in tough days with God? Trials, especially um, chastening. Well, David uses a great word picture here. He says, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. Picture that. He's going to guard his mouth, put a muzzle on his mouth. A muzzle is a tool to stop something. It's a covering. It's a covering over his mouth. So he, puts a, he determines to put a muzzle on his mouth so nothing comes out before the wicked. Um, it's a good warning from David during times of suffering that when we are around people who don't know God, we should remember to watch what we say as they will listen to our words and may easily turn them against us. I'm talking 
anyway, you know, I think you think of a social gathering. You ever seen some Christians in a social gathering? They're right in it. They're right in it with, with the unsaved. They're right in it. They're right in the conversations. They, the language is, is uh, robust, you know, a uh, little uh, testy. And they're just right there with the jokes and so on. And we hear from Scripture. Ephesians tells us not to, not to use crass talk. But I'm thinking more of along the lines of the context where David is suffering and there are enemies around him, people watching him. And so he wants to put a watch on his mouth. He's not going to mutter and moan, but he's going to, he doesn't want to tarnish God's name. He wants to uh, be right before God. And people do listen to our words. So the wicked, his words would seem to be a criticism of God and his ways. And he does not want to tarnish God's name. He covered his mouth while the wicked were in his presence. He watched what he said. But in our suffering, it can be easy sometimes to grumble and talk to a friend or a neighbor or co-worker about our problems. And they know you're a Christian, and so they kind of add it up. What's that all about? Where's your faith? What's that all about? That's not helping you. You're grumbling and moaning. Um, the Apostle Paul warns us about this. Uh, do all things in, in Philippians 2, 14 and 15. He says to do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. See, in our suffering, we are to bright, shine brightly in our dark world. We are to cast light, not darkness. We should learn to remember five things from David in this, in this text here. Number one, how we use our words is extremely important. It is easy to sin with our mouths. The Proverbs, some of the people, you know, some of you guys are going through the Proverbs, and how many verses talk about the mouth, the tongue, how we speak, what we say, when we say it. Um, it's so important to watch what we say. So important. Our words are extremely important. Number two, it is better to be silent than to say things that can be used against God by wicked people. David's wise son Solomon said it simply, but said it well in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 7b. There is a time to be silent, and there is a time to speak. And wisdom dictates when that happens, so we need to be wise when we use our words. One, one saying goes like this, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt, right? So true. Uh, Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he, clo when he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. So we have to wa be wise, be, have a wise silence before men. Number three, we should be ready to share such grief with godly persons who will direct us to godly advice. You see that also from the life of David and the, the Proverbs and Psalms and wisdom literature. And fourth, remember this, remember this, that my problems, trials, and discipline have been ordained by God for us to grow in holiness or holiness, the growth of others as they watch us grow through it, 
and for God's glory and his name. Number five, we should bring our troubles to God, always. No matter how big or small or insignificant we think they are, we ought to bring our troubles to God. Keeping, keeping uh, it bottled up inside doesn't help confession will, right? Verse 2, he says, I was mute and silent. I refrained even from good, and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me while I was musing the fire burned. His, his silence didn't help him. David's silence did not help him at all. It made it worse. And so it was like pouring gasoline on a fire for David. He kept it all, all bottled up and was not a good thing for him. Um, his silence didn't help. Verse 3, then I spoke with my tongue. One commentator says this. He put it this way. All great emotions require expression. They must have utterance, or over the overtaxed brain will reel into madness, and the overcharged heart will burst. So true. So true. We need to vent. We need to get it off our chest. And I can't think of no one greater than God himself. And we see that all through the wisdom literature as the writers and speakers just talk to God about their problems. Jeremiah 20 verse 9 says, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Even Jeremiah, another one, had to speak. There is a time to speak, and David brings his burden to the only one who can help and that is God himself. So rather than making a complaint, the psalmist, David, asked God to make him realize just how short and insubstantial his life is. David turns his anxiety into a prayer at this point, and this is what he says. Uh, we'll see that in a second. I'm sorry. He, he turns his anxiety into a prayer. And uh, why do I say anxiety? Because in, in Psalm 38.8, he says, I am benumbed. This word benumbed means to, to grow old and weary and badly crushed. Uh, I groan because of the agitation of my heart. And what do we call that today? Anxiety. We name it anxiety. Agitation of our heart. Uh, this is a crushing time for David. His heart is growing cold toward life. So interesting that in Psalm 38, we see the description of the effects that anxiety has on and stress have on the on the human body. Uh, in recent years, medical science has discovered that the guilt and burden of sin can have, they wouldn't call it sin necessarily, um, but guilt especially uh, can have serious physical consequences. The effects of sin and guilt on the, the human body can bring on all sorts of bodily problems, such as stress, Sleep disorders, emotions of anxiety, worry, fear, high blood pressure, ulcers, various mental distractions, as well as nutritional and appetite problems, and there's many, many more. You know, I, I think about this, and it's kind of like this, this, uh, this statement here. Uh, David's talking about his anxiety thousands of years ago. And he's describing all these physical problems that he's having, 
And it's kind of like um, it's kind of like climbing up Mount Rushmore, uh, Mount uh, Mount um, what's the, the Everest, Mount pick one, whatever, Mount Everest, right? It's like climbing up Mount Everest, and the guy gets up there. Yeah, there's great discovery, and there's God all the time. The Bible's right there, right? Nothing new here, nothing to see. It's been there all along. And, but, you know, medical science thinks that they are learning new things, but not always. Not always. God has been saying it for thousands of years. Well, this, this agitation of heart that David is experiencing brought on, was brought on because of the stresses of sin. Uh, in verse 38, 18, for I confess my iniquity, I am full of anxiety because of my sin. Sin brings on anxiety. Well, what was his sin? Let's, let's continue. He now turns a corner in his thinking, and he admits that he has an incorrect perspective on life, which drove his life. He, in his prayer, you will see the things that plagued David's thinking. David's prayer runs through uh, verse 14 through 13 in Psalm 39. Follow along. Here's David's prayer. He says in verse 4, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the extent of my day? See, see, David, you know, he was larger than life. He was a king. David, King David, the king of Israel. He, uh, he was big. He was uh, the king. He had riches. He had money. He was powerful. He was wealthy. He had it all. He had, he had wine, women, and song, all of it. He was the man, right? And uh, so he is big. He's, he's prideful. And so God is going to take him down a few notches, and he's doing it here. He prays not that God would reveal to him the time of his death necessarily, in verse 4, but, he, but that he would give him a correct estimate of his frailty, that he might be a better and wiser man with his realizations. It's like the prayer of Moses in Psalm 90, verse 12, where it, it says this, So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Let me know how transient I am. See, he's not looking for, I'm going to die on the year, you know, whatever, put a number in there, on this day at this time. It's more, he wants to have a heart of wisdom. He wants to know, that, show exactly how transient and short-lived he is. He wants to present a heart of wisdom to God. So you see, big King David became very small under the hand of God. Notice David's description of how transient we really are. In verse 5, he says, Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Now you look at these three words here in verse 5, hand breath, nothing, and mere breath. A hand breath, what is that? Well, if you hold up your hand, it's, it's your four fingers, a hand breath. It's probably one of the smallest measures, natural measures on earth. That's what commentators say. I'll go with it. So it's a short, it's a short measure. We have a cubit, right, which is the elbow to the tip of our finger, and but a hand breath. Our life is just a hand breath. In the big picture, the grand scheme of life, planet Earth, the universe, all of the, everything all over the place, what's this? This is nothing. 
You get the picture. You and I, every day, we should be able to, we should be reminded. We're always looking at our hands, right? Everything, cooking, writing, whatever, using our phone. It's, we're always using our hands. It ought to be a reminder to us that a life is short. Make it count. Short life. And then nothing. Nothing is nothing, right? It's no thing in the, in the grand scheme. And then every man is a mere breath. It's the word habel. We find it often in, in Ecclesiastes where it just means, as I said before, it's that your breath on a winter day. Tea kettle steam, right? It's nothing. It's a vapor. Psalm 103.14 says, He himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are, but it gets worse. With dust, right? With dust, breath, steam, dust. Get the idea? Get the picture? Isaiah 40.15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands, coastlands like fine dust. Man, are we small. We are small. See, humanity thinks much of itself, but God sees it as just dust on a scale. And don't misunderstand me. You know, we're not useless. God has great value. He sent Christ to pay the penalty of our sin. So we have value, but not intrinsic. It's, it's the value that God places on it. Verse 5, surely every man at his best is mere breath. The meaning of breath, as I said, is just a puff of smoke out of a wood stove or a steam kettle. Um, and it's the imagery of something that vanishes very, very quickly. Jews 31 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. James 4 uses it as well. It says, that don't, uh, don't boast about tomorrow because you're just a vapor. You don't know. Well, you, you're here a little while, and then you just vanish away. Humanity is not the big deal that we think we are. So, behold, five, behold, you have made my hand as hand breaths in my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Um, surely every man at his best is a mere breath. And this word selah, you see in your text, is the word that means to, you know, take a break and think about this for a minute. This lets Think about it. Think about these concepts in your day or your coffee tomorrow morning, that we are just transient. We're so just nothing. A hand breath. Sexually, every man walks about as a phantom. This word phantom is a shadow. It's just a shadow. Shadow is nothing. It's just an image of, of, the, of a reality. Uh, if you if you think of a shadow, we'll talk about a short-lived thing. A shadow on a sunny day, on a, on a sunny, hot, sunny day, whatever. doesn't have to be hot, it's a sunny day. You look at a shadow, you know that it never, that shadow never stays there. Never. It never stays where you see it. You, if you put a measure, in nano measurements, because of the earth moving and the sun, you know, sun casting a shadow, you could put a a measure out in the parking lot where your shadow is, walk away, or not even, just watch. And it moves, right? But typically we don't, we, in the measurement of time, it's never staying in the same spot because the earth is always moving. 
no matter how small amount of it moves, it's moving. So a shadow, get the idea, it's, it's another thing that's nothing. It never stays the same place when the earth is moving and the sun is casting its shadow. J.C. Ryle said it this way, the best of men are men at best. I like that. The best of men are men at best, which is not very much. It's not very best <laughs> if we know our hearts before God. We're not the best. There's only one best. So these ideas, all these imageries that, that David is writing about, that the Spirit is inspiring him to write, is, is very sobering when you think about it. Praise God for his, his coming down to our level to give us these descriptions of uh, what we are, who we are. But man walks as a phantom, uh, and surely, he says, they make an uproar for nothing. The world, men, make an uproar. They uproar. They're always, you know, look at the riots this summer. Big deal. A lot of destruction, a lot of devastation, but it was nothing. It was just empty, empty content to what was going on as we watched the news this past year. Um, they, we see that today. It's all over the place. Uh, people in the news coverage, riots, violence in the streets, about any and every issue under the sun. They've got to have their five minutes of fame and, uh, and their big mouth you know, always has to be blabbing all over the place. Big deal. Nothing. Empty in God's sight. Useless. Let me tell you what I really think. Uh, so they make an uproar for nothing, just emptiness. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. Well, if anybody knew about this, it would be David, rich King David, he amassing wealth. Um, David's son Solomon said the same thing in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, 1 and 2. He says, basically, who will get my riches and stuff when I go? Are they going to use it wisely? What do you care, Solomon? You're not even going to be around. You know, that's the answer, God. You know. So what? So what? And so, you know, it's what I've worked for all my life. Big deal. You're not going to be around. There's no U-Hauls pulling. There's no, you know, there's no U-Hauls going to a, to a wake, right? Pulling to go to a cemetery behind a hearse. You're not taking it with you when you go. doesn't matter. Empty thinking. But you see some of the thinking that, that David has been pondering, and so now he's praying it to God. Help me with these things. You know, help me with these things, Lord. So these are some of the things and sins that David was doing. He was thinking, and it's incorrect. And so God is helping him, I believe, with these things. So both David and his son worried over these things, about riches, what was going to happen with their money. Um, now, there's nothing wrong with having a lot of money. I wish I had more. There's nothing wrong with that. What are you going to do with it? In covetousness, but that's, that's wrong. But there's nothing wrong with blessings of God and giving you riches. Nothing. But it's how we process those riches and what we do with them and worry over them. Um, you know, checking the stocks and stock market and every, every day and second. Well, 
if you've got money, riches, any any kind of any any kind of riches, what do you what anything, any any material goods, what will you do when it's if it's all taken away tonight? How would you respond to that? When if you know you found out that all of your investments were toast, your house burned, like Job, lost everything. What would you how would you reply, respond if you were Job tomorrow? It's a good it's really a good test of our thinking. But in Luke 12, I like the story in Luke 12, 16 through 20. talks about the rich man who had all kinds of goods, and he's, uh, does, he's wondering, what should I do uh, with all of my more that I'm getting? I have barns, but they're not big enough. And, and so he says, I'll just build bigger barns. He's greedy. He's selfish, covetous. And so what does God say? Fool, you're a fool. This night, your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Good question, Solomon. Good question, David. But they didn't have the New Testament, so they're kind of on their own. <laughs> but they tell us, so verse 7, he says, And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you, and there goes the title of the sermon. What do you wait for? Do you wait for God, God in your trials or in your when he chastens you? Do you wait? Is your hope in you? Well, David waited on David for so much of his life, and David hoped in David for so much of his life, but not anymore. He turns a corner, and he repents of his faulty thinking before God. So what do you trust in? What are you anxious about? What agitates your heart? What do you wait for, for your security or for your identity tonight? What sinful thinking are you clinging tightly to today in your, in your thinking? What, don't do what David did. Don't stay there. If you continue on that path, you can expect that God will discipline you and bring you into a greater sanctification. That's, his, that's, his, uh, that's what God does. He doesn't leave us in our sin. What is the remedy? Well, see David's prayer for a repentance and humility in verse 8. He says, deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. Back in verse 1. Going back there. Don't make me a reproach. Don't let me be a reproach to my enemies, to the wicked. I put a muzzle on my mouth, but I want to I wanna go beyond that. I don't want to be a reproach to the wicked, to the foolish. I have become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. What's to say? When God does something, what do we say to that? There's nothing to say. We realize that God has done it. God is the sovereign, the provident king who, who orders all of our days. Because as you have done it, you, remove your plague from me. See, David knew he, fully, he knew fully well where his, this correction was coming from. Remove your plague from me because of the oppression of your hand, I am perishing. With reproofs, you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is mere breath. Now this, 
He says it again, Selah. This is the second time in this text. Stop and think about these things. Stop and think. Every man is mere breath, is mere Hebel. It's just, again, the steam, the steam kettle. Nothing. So 12, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. Turn your gaze away from me that I might smile again before I depart and am no more. Now God is, he's not saying, God, you know, don't look at me, don't notice me, I, I don't want you to, oh, I don't want anything to do with you, because if God takes his eye off of us, we're in big trouble. But he's talking about this, this gaze of chastening, this gauge of judgment on his sin, and he doesn't want that. Here, David is feeling the crushing discipline of God on his life, and he wants to get out from under that pressure. And so he's repenting. He's turning to God. He's praying to God. He's asking of God, to God of that. So is this it? Verse 13, there's no closure. It just ends, right? Like Psalm 88. Not quite as bad as Psalm 88, but there's no I praise God in the gates and all of that happy, joyful psalm talk, right, that we see so often in the psalms. It just sort of leaves you flat. Well, that's, that's not it. That's not the end of the story. It's not. It's not. Where's the closure? Where's, do you want closure or conclusion, or do you not care? Just say, yeah, whatever, let it go. I'm not going to let it go. I'm not going to let it go. Hold your finger there in Psalm 39 and turn to uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. This, I love this story. Because really, in a sense, it's all of our story. We're all in this, in here somewhere. At and maybe at different times, certainly, you know, we can identify with this, if we're honest. It begins in, it begins in verse 11. It says, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth and between them, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country. And he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods of, that, of the swine that the swine were eating. And no one gave him any, anything, and no one gave anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, there's a repentance here, he says, came to repentance. He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was standing still, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, and the, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven 
and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted, fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. See, that's what God does in his mercy to us as his children. He, his kindness and his grace and his patience with us day after day after day. So is Psalm 39, 13 the end of the story? No, it's not. See, remember, the verses and the chapters are numbers that we men put into it. Are you still at 39? Continue reading to the next verse. 41, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see in fear, and I will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who, who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud, nor to the, those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O oh Lord, my God, are the, are the wonders which you have done, and your thoughts towards me, us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. It's a beautiful ending, isn't it? It's a beautiful ending to David's chastening and trial that God has put him under for his own sin. God is gracious and merciful to us. It's a beautiful, beautiful ending to David's trial. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm. It's such a, a sweet, sweet psalm. We, Lord, we are here so often. And so we thank you for the example that you raised up in David, his life. And you've given it to us to examine and to think about, to pray about in our own lives. We should never uh, judge David for his, his, uh, his sin and missteps and foolish things that he did, but to really see that we are there at times, that we should never be self-righteous and to think that we would never do some of the things that the men and women of the scriptures did do because we could be there we all have the the same sin depravity and potential to do the things that others do and so we pray help us not to to fall into those traps to think about these things think about our life and how Short it is. It's a hand breath. Lord, we see our hands every day. Remind us of these things. Help us to see that uh, we are just uh, we are just Hebel. We are we are just a vapor here. Help us to live for you as we go out into the world this week with these thoughts in our minds. To be ever aware of our, our transientness, and that we would uh, share the the truth with others as we come into contact with other people. So we 
Thank you for this night. In Jesus' name, amen.